Let's uh, take our Bibles and turn together in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 will be our examination today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So, today is a great day to be a child of God in Christ. Great day to be alive. No matter the world that we see around us that's unraveling and chaotic at times, it's, it's a great day to be a child of God. I'm grateful for the opportunity yet again to stand and to preach, preach God's Word, and I hope that you will trust me this morning once more with the handling of God's Word as we turn our attention to the compelling love of Christ, the compelling love of our Lord Jesus. As we are marching closer to the day that we celebrate the birth of our Lord, our attention is turned to His work here on earth and through His ministry. And I pray that as we reflect upon the in Incarnation, that the Lord became flesh. I pray that as we are turning our attention this Christmas day to the birth of our Lord, I also pray that we are stopping along the way to reflect upon why our Lord had to come in the first place. So we have the candle today lit of love, and we have the communion trays before us, which are evident reminders of the love of Christ. See, every year we have sermons and we'll have lessons on the birth of Jesus and Christmas time. And in these sermons, you'll have moments when the expositor or the preacher would challenge the congregation to avoid commercialism and avoid the busyness of the holidays. And we can all get wrapped up in that commercial ideal of, of Christmas time and the busyness of the season. And, and those are good reminders. Those are good challenges. Those are good rebukes. But I would submit to you the biggest struggle that I have seen in life itself is not the trappings of commercialism or busyness. The biggest struggle for many is seeing Jesus outside of a manger scene looking towards the cross. We still see Jesus as a cuddly baby. This time of the year, we tend to look at the little cuddly baby Jesus laying in a manger, and we forget the old rugged, splintery cross, which is why he came to fill the manger in the first place. But was the manger scene really that cute and cuddly? Do we see a picture of Jesus wrapped in some fine linen? laying in the manger? Was the manger scene where Jesus laid in this manger, this hewn out piece of, of stone, a water trough, was this scene really cute and cuddly like we see in many nativity scenes today? I want you to remember, part of Jesus' ministry, a majority of, of Christ's ministry on earth was for him to take the place of a servant. 
Now, to be, to be supremely humble, you will not find a more superlative act of humility than the work and person of Jesus. In fact, Philippians 2, verse 7, speaks of this emptying. In verse 7, Philippians chapter 2, it says that Christ emptied himself, not of his divinity. He didn't devoid himself of any divine attributes. He was, he's still God. He emptied himself, how? By taking the form of a servant, the manger, wrapped in swaddling, beaten and dragon clothes, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And so just to burst our little cute and cuddly manger bubble, the mentality that we hold somehow, this, this place stank of animal dung, smelled of urine, it was probably cold and damp. And if you had allergies like I do, it's probably not a place that you would want to be. But this is the place where our Lord stepped into human history. The rightful place of the King of glory to come in the form of a servant. This is a place where the socially high on the ladder would have looked down upon this place, would have looked down upon this family, would have looked down upon, upon Jesus and His birth and His family. This, this place was no royal palace hall. This was not a hall of kings. This is the love of God visualized. Taking the love of Christ and his servitude and his humility, taking the love of Christ out of Christmas. And this time of the year is like taking the sunlight out of our daytime. It don't make sense. I had the opportunity to have lunch this past week at a restaurant. I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you the restaurant I was at. I'm not going to tell you the town I was at because we as Christians, sometimes we like to boycott everything under the sun. But it's just not a viable way of life. And so I was sitting down at this restaurant having a meal. I ordered my food and the waitresses were kind of running back and forth. And as they were running back and forth, they were talking to one another as they passed. And I ordered my food and I was sitting there kind of waiting for my drink to come and as two waitresses were pa passing one another, one waitress looked at the other and said, Hey, I wish that we could change this sign. It was a Merry Christmas sign, and it was strung out. Each letter, each letter was a standalone letter on a banner that hung down low, and it said Merry Christmas across of it. And she pointed to the Christ part in Christmas and said, I wish that we could take this part out and just put like an X here or something. And I thought to myself, even historically, lady, even historically, that would still implicate and still mean Christ. The Greek lettering, the Acts, if you will, still would stand historically for Christ. But what she was saying is that she wishes that we can take the Christ out of Christmas. 
It is like taking the sunlight out of our daytime. It does not make sense. And so we pray for this young lady. We pray for folks like that because Romans 5 and verse 8 says, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And maybe one day the Lord will get a hold of this young lady and shake her up and call him into herself and save her. We'll pray for that. Amen? But taking Christ out of this time of year is like taking the sunlight away from our daytime. So the topic for today's sermon is one on love and the love of Christ. And I know that this topic has had a lot of ink shed upon it over the years, and it would, it would take an eternity for me to cover the love of Christ in one sermon. You talk about the brotherly love, the phileo love, the agape love. You talk about all the extensive usage and all the declensions in the Greek of love and the many dimensions and the richness of love found in the New Testament. It would take me almost an eternity to cover all of the aspect of God's love. But there's one aspect of the love of God that I want to highlight today. And this aspect of the love of Christ that I want to highlight is the love that motivates you and I as followers of Jesus that moves us to action. What does the compelling love of Christ drive us to? Not in some moralistic way of thinking, but because we love Jesus, what does that love compel us and drive us and motivate us towards? So I'll ask you, if you will, let's stand together. I've got two verses I want to read. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 through and 15. I want to read these verses. Hopefully you've had time to find that in your Bible. God's Word says, For the love of Christ controls us, compels us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was, was raised. Lord, we ask you for your blessing upon our time together. Father, that the cross of Christ would be elevated. Lord, that your word would be heard. God, that we would hear it and respond rightfully. Your Holy Spirit would be working through your, this word that was read in, in our heart and mind, help us to, to rightfully reflect on the love of Jesus. In his name we pray it. Amen. You may be seated. So as you have 2 Corinthians open before you, we'll navigate through some of the context behind the writing of this letter, particularly when we get to the early part and portion of chapter 5. And although I won't reference those specifically, we will navigate through certain selections and certain points of 2 Corinthians to build some context. But last week I asked you to consider how many times the word hope is used in the Old and New Testament. And if you remember, in the English Standard Version of the Bible, it was 144 times, and you navigate all the way down to different translations in their 100s. King James Version uses 124 times the word hope is, is, is used. And I hope that you noticed that it was no mistake that there was an overemphasis of the word hope in the sermon. 
just as I challenged you to go back and to look how many times the word hope is used, I will challenge you as well. Go back and listen to last week's sermon and count how many times the word hope was used. It is no mistake, my friends. There is no mistake because the word hope emphasizes and stresses in thematically in the Old and New Testament that our only hope is in Jesus. Today's theme is that of Christ's compelling love. Really at the heart of 2 Corinthians is Paul exhorting the church to, to abandon the old way of life and to pick up the new life that they have in Jesus, to lay down the old and pick up the new. The compelling love of Christ lived out in us would motivate us as it did with Paul to see others mature in their faith and to leave the old person behind. A love for Christ would compel us to love one another and want to see each other grow in their faith and to mature in their faith. So Paul wrote 2 Corinthians after receiving this very enthusiastic report from Titus that his Corinthian friends, his, his, the Corinthian followers of Jesus had repented of their former hostility towards him. We find that in chapter 7 verses 8 through 11 which is an encouragement any time that we hear that folks have repented, they have laid down their former way of life and they have repented of their sin, they have repented of their stubbornness, God has broken that stony heart, God has moved them by the Holy Spirit, they have repented and now they are pursuing and chasing after Jesus. What an encouragement that is. We love to hear when people lay down that old way and pick up the mantle of Christ. Most likely, Paul would have written this second letter of Corinth while he was at the city of Macedonia, which he opens with his customary greeting and carries a pastoral tone really through the whole book itself. Historically, scholars would say that there are at least four letters to the church at Corinth. God in His superintending and transmitting exactly what He would have us to read as the worshiper today gave us two letters to the church at Corinth which we get to enjoy this morning in two verses. He opens up with his customary greeting, carries on in his pastoral tone through the duration of the book. We see this expressed in chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, where Paul offers an admonition to the church to forgive and to reaffirm your love to those who wronged you or those who need forgiving. People who love one another Forgive one another too. It is a stinging reminder to love the one that you think is unforgivable. Why? Because Christ died for the unforgivable, the seemingly unforgivable, which is a message, a snapshot, a picture of the gospel itself. Paul writes in verse 10, uh, for the 10 verses that we find in the early portion of chapter 5 of the heavenly reality that, that faces every follower of Christ that this world is not our primary dwelling place. No matter how hard we try to hold on to this world as a Christ follower, this is not our primary place of residence. In fact, he says in the beginning of chapter 5, he says, we have a building from God not made with hands, but internal in the heavens. 
a house not made with our hands, but one eternal in the heavens. And so as people of Christ, there is a longing for heaven. And the Lord has given us a down payment of His Holy Spirit until Christ is seen face to face in glory. In fact, the word that is used for guarantee in many translations, properly translated, means an earnest or a, part, a down payment in advance for security. And because we long for this heavenly home and because we have been given this ministry of reconciliation, we therefore, because we love others, we persuade others that we have a hope in Jesus. And so in light of those opposing Paul's apostleship, as we draw closer to verse 14, in light of those opposing the apostle Paul's apostleship, he says, if we are out of our minds, let it be for Christ. Let us be crazy for the Lord Jesus. Then Paul transitions into the love of Christ and what his love moves us towards or compels us towards. In fact, I want to share with you two truths this morning of the compelling love of Christ. First, the compelling love of Jesus Christ holds us and knits us together. We see this thematically through and through in the Bible, that the love of Christ binds us together. Reading verse 14 again, For the love of Christ controls us, constrains us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Thinking about the full work of Christ, His work on the cross, His resurrection, because He has died for us and rose again for our salvation, it, can, it, it constrains us, controls us, this amount of, and this vastness of His love. Paul reminds the church who or what is the driving force behind our actions. So if we say that we love our Lord Jesus, then we must also love one another. If we love Christ, we will love each other and we will love one another. In other words, actions speak louder than words. Our actions speak louder than the words that we say. An interesting picture here. You'll notice some of your Bible might translate this different. It might, it might translate this as constrains. Uh, the English Standard Version uses the word control. This word is very interesting in verse 14. This is the picture that we get from this, from this word. The word means to hold together. I like this picture in the Greek because it's used often. In fact, in Acts, Acts chapter 7, this constraining, verse 57, is, is used. This constraining. It's like this. Here's the picture you get. Ears being pressed together. Heads being pressed together. You ever heard the expression, two heads are better than one? We are constrained. We have pressed our heads together. We are tied together. We are pressed on every side, Luke 8, 45, to hold fast, Luke 22, verse 63, to hold oneself, Acts 18, verse 5, to be pressed together. So here's Paul's idea of Christ's love. This is what he's conveying that the love of Christ holds him together, holds us together for the task at hand, whatever men might say. Whatever men might say, the love of Christ puts us together, ties us together, knits us together. In today's colloquial language, we might say something like this. The love of Christ binds us, holds us together. We are tied together by the love of Jesus. Therefore, love one another. The love of Christ keeps one from living for himself 
and instead causes him or her to pour out of their life into others and to give of themselves and to think of themselves more highly, no, but to humble yourself. In keeping with this theme of compelling love as Christ died for all, now those who live are driven to live for the one who raised who is raised from the dead and lives forevermore. See, a new creation in Christ loves like Christ loves and pursues Him more. Thinking about this time of year and Christmas time and enjoying family time together, sometimes as a dad, you know, early on when our boys were little growing up and, and they would get gifts under the Christmas tree sometimes, sometimes the presents that they would receive as dads, you often spend a lot of time putting batteries in new toys and charging up batteries and making sure that all the batteries are there and thinking to yourself that I remember to get batteries for this thing or for that thing. And many Christmas mornings have been spending, tracking down batteries and I remember not having enough battery and in this, in, in the, to, to power this toy, and I would go and, and scavenge batteries out of old remotes that we didn't use anymore, hoping that they would work, just so I can have enough power and batteries to power up a toy or to make some electronic device work. See, having the right power source makes all the difference in the world. Having the adequate power source makes all the difference in the world. Now, with that thought in mind, what motivates, what powers, what moves the body of Christ in the world today? What compels us to be like Christ is His love. His love. See, the control here and the power are one and the same. The love of Christ controls us, moves us, and empowers us as well. The love of Christ compels and empowers His people to act on His behalf with the beautiful gift and working of the Holy Spirit. Just what, what does the love of Jesus move us towards? Well, I will submit to you a few things that the love of Christ compels His people to do. It, as mentioned, one binds us together. The love of Christ compels His people to preach the message of reconciliation or to preach the gospel. The great love of Christ was such that Christ died for all people. 2 Corinthians verse 5, 14. And Paul's love for Christ was such that he was willing to die to self, not think too highly of himself. In Galatians 2 and verse 20. The love of Christ will compel you to move out into the world, to share with your friends, to share with the men in the field, to share with the one across the way, the love of Christ, and to testify of his love often, and sometimes we say, well, I don't know what to say. I don't feel adequate enough to share my faith. But the love of Christ in our life and what He did on the cross and His resurrection will compel us and move us even if, even if we might flutter and trip along the way in sharing it. The love of Christ compels us to share the message of reconciliation or the gospel. The love of Christ will compel us to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven. 1 John 4 and verse 20 have some very stinging words. It says, If anyone says, I love God, 
and hates his brother, he is a liar. Which means, hey, I'm, I don't have love for my brother. He says, I love God and I yet hate my brother. The Bible calls him what? A liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. So the love of Christ compels us to forgive one another. And may I remind you again that you and I were the unforgivable. We were the people that Romans 5.8 was talking about. The love of Christ will constrain us together, will press us together in ministry, will tie us together. We might not walk in step, in perfect step, in perfect harmony all the time, but we will have the same motivation, we will have the same motive, we will have the same goal. It blows my mind the amount of churches in this area even, even Orthodox churches. I'm talking about Bible-believing, Christ is the only way of salvation, preaching churches. And how divided and divisive and and infractions we are. Not only in this community, there's many other places. But listen, if I am on the same, we're afraid that somebody's going to steal some members. We're afraid that they're going to go there and not here. But you know, when we get to heaven, there's not going to be none of that. We'll all be one body worshiping Christ forever. So if if the love of Christ constrains us and ties us together down here, why can't we all walk in step? Pride. Pride. Which means, leads me to number four. Number four is speak the hard truth. Speak hard truth. Ephesians 4 and verse 15. Rather speaking truth in love. I'm not talking about speaking hard truth to cut somebody down or being ill, but out of love, wanting them to grow, wanting them to mature in their faith, knowing all along that nobody has reached that spiritual uh, plateau, that we are not here. None of us are here. None of us are on the top of Mount Spiritual. None of us. To be able to speak the truth in love, that we are growing up. There's the words of maturity, that we are to grow up in every way, into Him who is the head, into Christ. Now, our problem is that we think if we approach a brother or sister and challenge them in any way or speak these hard truths, that that is unloving. We think that if we meddle a little bit or we say, brother, where were you at today? Or sister, where were you at? You know, I, I worry about you, that we are somehow meddling in their life and we're invading their privacy. We speak truth in love, seeking maturity and to grow up in every way. And that really is a hard one to swallow in this culture we live in. When it is so individualistic. It is me, myself, and Jesus. Number five is bear with one another. The love of Christ will compel us to put up with one another. Even sometimes when we're not walking in step with one another. Colossians 3.13 says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, run around town and tell it. 
What does it say? Forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you. We forget that, don't we? So you also must forgive. Christ came to fill the manger, to go to the cross, to rise again so that we could forgive one another. Christ did not come to earth to offer himself as a sacrifice so we can backbite, harbor unforgiveness, talk about one another, slander each other, run the church's name through the mud. No. We find that the compelling love of Christ constrains us together, builds us together, ties us together. But secondly, the compelling love of Christ brings sacrifice. Brings sacrifice. And again, like with humility, you will find no superlative example that exists other than the sacrifice of Christ, the sacrifice and humility. You will not find a more superlative example than the life of Jesus, his perfect life, his death on the cross, his ministry on this earth, his resurrection. You will find no better example than that. Verse 15 says, And he died for all that those who might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He died for all people so that those who should, those who live no longer live to themselves. Sacrifice. But we sacrifice our life for Christ. We sacrifice for those that we love. We sacrifice for those that we care about. We go out of our way, above and beyond. Scholar A.T. Robertson said, The high doctrine of Christ's atonement and His death carries a correspondingly high obligation on the part of those who live because of Him. Then he says this, listen carefully. Selfishness is ruled out by our duty to live unto Him who for their sake died and rose again. Selfishness is ruled out by our duty to live unto Him for their sake, our sakes, died and rose again. So to live for Christ and to love others should excite within us the desire to put others' needs before our own. Selfishness in the kingdom of God is like saying, Bitter is sweet, and sweet is bitter. They have no part together. Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone amongst you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to. Again, selfishness is ruled out by our duty to live and to the one who died for us and rose again. Now, of course, the mission of our Lord is the premier example that because of our because of His love that He died for all who would be redeemed and to be saved. And if our life is not to live for self but for Christ, if our life is not to live for ourselves but to sacrifice for Christ, then it should follow in verse 17, as Paul uses this therefore, it should follow in verse 17 that therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that newness, that new identity in Christ compels us to love as Christ loved. I think of the sacrifices in my own life so that I might have the things in life to survive. 
people and family that I love who have given of themselves and have not asked for anything in return. There are many in here that you could say that one has made sacrifices, this one in my life, and that one has sacrificed. I think of my family, I think of my mother and my father growing up, the sacrifices they've made to make sure that I had shoes on my feet and clothes on my back and food in my mouth. I think of the sacrifices that they made. I think of sacrifices that my own family, I think of the sacrifices that my wife has made so that I can stand here today and preach God's word. None of those sacrifices match the matchless love of Jesus. As well appreciated as those sacrifices are in our life, and the people who have poured into ours and have given much, it does not match the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus that was expressed out of love and glory to the Father. So yeah, we celebrate what happened in the manger. We celebrate it. We certainly want to celebrate what happened in the manger as God put flesh and robed in flesh and become God-man. We want to celebrate that and we want to navigate through the deep, deep theological waters of the incarnation. What, that, what, what does that mean? What's the implications of the incarnation? We want to navigate those waters. We want to stop along the markers along the way of Jesus' deep and great love and His sacrifice. But we must push through and live what we have learned and live who we are in Christ. And theological knowledge is important and biblical knowledge is important. Knowing of the life and death of Jesus is important and all the theological nuances, those things are important. But I have to remind myself of this very often. The gospel is more than just a theological formula or a lesson. The gospel is a person. And so we no longer live for ourselves. We live for the gospel. We live for the person Jesus and this love is greatly broadcasted through his, his perfect life, his vicarious death, and his glorious resurrection. John 15, 13 reminds us of this love. Greater love hath no man than this, no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. And from the manger, we see the cross. And from the cross, we see the grave. And from the grave, we see the resurrection. And from the resurrection, we see the eschaton, or that he is coming again. Amen. The manger is more than just a cute and cuddly baby Jesus. Important, yes. The compelling love of Christ binds us and holds us together. But the compelling love of Christ also brings us to a place of sacrifice as Christ has sacrificed his life and his death on the cross and his glorious resurrection. 